Hey, listen, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open them up to 2 Peter chapter 3. What a great text. I get a chance to preach the gospel to you today as we continue our study in this wonderful epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote around A.D. 66. Uh, he is great apostle of the faith, the rock, and uh, Petra, Peter. He writes to a struggling group of people. The believers in the church at that time were suffering from persecution, not only from without, but more insidiously, they were suffering from those who tormented them and persecuted them from within, and that would be the false teachers. And so as we come to chapter 3, keep this thought in mind. We are going to be talking about the church and talking specifically about the return of Jesus Christ, the bodily, visible return of Christ to this earth. Now, you got to keep that in mind in chapter 3 because chapter 2, he specifically targeted and preached against those false teachers and false prophets. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to verse 7, then we're going to stop. And then after our Explore God campaign and emphasis, we will pick it back up uh, toward the end of the fall. And just as God would have it, chapter 3 really deals with eschatology. It deals with the coming of Christ. And then beginning in January, we'll launch right into a verse-by-verse study of the great apocalypse, the book of Revelation. So today, we're in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And that is not a typo, by the way, all right? That is not a typo. I meant that to say the plurality of his comings. Because he's already come one time, all right? And we're about to celebrate that advent when Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, came to Bethlehem. The Almighty God come in the flesh, the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is born, and hallelujah, the angels sang at his birth, and he lived a perfect, pristine, awesome life. He performed miracles. He taught amazing sermons, and then he died on a cross, and then he arose from the dead. Now listen to this. After his resurrection, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, and for 40 days, 40 days, he appeared to the church, and he preached to them of the kingdom of God. Then he ascended to the Father, and before he went back to the Father, he told the church our marching orders. He said, now I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them and teach them everything that I have commanded you. And so we're obeying the Great Commission today. We're going to teach the Word of God, and we're going to reflect on His first coming in the Lord's Supper. But there's an S to that word coming because 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about that great, grand, glorious, awesome day when the Son of God literally comes again. Now, Peter knew that there were scoffers. There were those who doubted that Jesus would come way back then. The Holy Spirit knew there would be people who doubt and question and are extremely skeptical about Jesus coming again. So he writes this whole chapter about it. Then, of course, John he writes the whole book of Revelation about the end time. So, here we go. Second Peter, beloved, agape toy. I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds. What a wonderful word, echolinus, this word pure. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'm stirring up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful. Be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. 
and of the commandment of us. Now, Peter links himself with this band of believers, and he says, we are the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers, now keep this in mind, that scoffers will come in the last days, and they will walk according to their own lust, Peter says. And they will say, now they're going to say this, this is a, this is a riddle, really a, a critical rhetorical question. They are not asking, really is he coming? They're like criticizing the doctrine that Jesus would come again. Now, church family, why would they do that? If we understood chapter 2, we would answer that question easily, that the reason they scoff and deride and chide the, the second coming of Christ is because they thought that if He came again, then He would have to judge the world, and we know God's not going to judge the world, so therefore, Jesus is not coming. That's what they taught. And Peter is combating that. He is contrasting their teaching with the real truth, where, he's, where he says, the scoffers say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, Peter says, they willfully forget that by the Word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water, and the earth was also standing in the water by which the world that then existed, it perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The Old and the New Testaments clearly teach both comings of Christ. Sprinkled throughout the, the prophets and the law and the writing of the 39 canonical books of the Old Testament, you see the coming of Christ. But also, in the Old Testament, and especially in the New, we see not only His first coming, but we also see His second coming. And there are many then, scoffers then, and there are many scoffers today, who ridicule, who laugh, who think that you and I are absolutely off of our rocker in our minds if we believe in such supernatural, catastrophic events that are yet to come. Now listen to me today. If you're here today and you're an empiricist or a pure rationalist and you have a bias against the supernatural, then you're going to have a problem with this sermon. In fact, you're going to have a problem with all of Christendom because Christianity is predicated on the bedrock foundational truths of the supernatural. The supernatural God who spoke everything into existence. That same God flooded with the great deluge. He flooded the world and changed the topography and the geography of our planet Earth. That same God gave His Son Jesus, who was born of a virgin. Come on! How many virgin births do you know? Not many, not any, but one. That same Jesus Christ bodily, viscerally, physically arose from the dead, and one day He is coming again. Listen, all of that is predicated on the supernatural. In fact, our whole faith is built on the supernatural. Listen, you don't have to check your brains in the door to believe in the supernatural. I just demonstrated that a Ph.D. in bio-something, very intelligent, says, yes, I mean, God's given me this brain, but He's also given me faith. 
I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that He is coming again. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, belief and faith, they are not step, a step in the darkness, but it's a leap into the light. He said, I believe in the Son of God just like I believe in the physical sun. Because by its light, I see everything else. And C.S. Lewis, by the way, was no dummy, all right? He was a brilliant, prodigious genius of a mind. So what we're going to do today as we move toward the elements, as we move to this time of eating this bread and drinking this juice and asking God to purify our hearts and asking God to cleanse us and make us more like Christ. And, and we're going to commemorate, we're going to remember, we're going to moralize, we're going to just focus on Christ, His first coming, okay, and then also His second. Let me begin with this word, the affirmation of His coming. If you'll notice in chapter 3, uh, Peter, he responds to these critics and these cynics and these skeptics. He affirms in verse 3, he said, Now, beloved, agape toy, uh, loved ones, church family, if you will. Four times in this one chapter, he uses this word or form of the word, agape toy. He says, Now I write to you this second epistle. Oh, my goodness, guys. You ought to read the debates about the second epistle. I've never seen so much theological debate and argument about that one phrase. And I've read them, most of the arguments this week. You say, boy, you have a boring week. If you sit there and just read all the pros. By the way, I actually love that kind of stuff. I love reading what these great minds have to say. And I search for the heart of God and the mind of God so that when I stand up behind the sacred desk of God and approach the people of God, then I can bring to you the Word of God that will encourage you with your walk with God. Okay? So I take all of this very seriously. I take the Word of God extremely seriously. He says, I wrote to you now the second time. I've read all the arguments and I've come back to the very beginning and the conclusion that many evangelical scholars believe he's talking about the first epistle. <laughs> he's just talking about First Peter, all right? And, and it reminds me of First Peter. Because in First Peter 1.13, he says, to gird up the loins of your mind, all right? Now, Peter, it's important to know doctrine, to know correctly. And so he says, beloved, I'm writing to you a second time, in both of which, both of these epistles, I stir up, I love that word, I'm stirring up your pure minds by way of reminder. Uh, this is an interesting word, the word pure. I want you to look at it for, with me for just a moment. Only one other time, this word, elekrinus, is used in the Greek New Testament. And it is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. And there, it is translated sincere. Now stay with me. Pure minds. Sincere minds. Have you ever noticed sometimes people's pure minds, brilliant minds, are not sincere minds because they know so much or they think they know so much, they know maybe even more than God. But Peter's saying, no, that's not you, church, because you have a pure mind that is also a very genuine, sincere mind. By the way, that word sincere is from the Latin word, two words, sinicera, without wax. That's what the word means. And here's the etymology of this word. Here's the derivation of the word. That word is used by potters. They would take a vase of pottery, and those who, well, they were not very good at their trade, they would put wax within the crevices, and it would cheapen the value of the vase or the pottery. And the only way to detect or ascertain if that piece of 
pottery was genuine and had no wax sincere, no wax elecrinus, and the word literally means judged by the sun. So they would take up that wax, that, that, excuse me, that pottery, and they would look at it and they would turn it and tilt it and they would look to see if it was pure because the sun would reveal any impurity. And Peter says, that's the kind of mind I want you to have. I want you to have, oh, I like the way one person put it. He said this. Oh, let me see if I can find it. Here it comes. Oh, here it is. I want you to have a sun-judged mind, not those in which their sin spots have been covered. Pure minds, honest minds, open minds, sincere minds. I'm writing to you, the church of the living God, that you may be, verse 2, with a sincere mind, you may be mindful of the words. Of the words, he says, that were spoken by the prophets. Obviously, he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, all right? And also, he says, by the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's interesting to me that he is, he's building this case against the false teachers. A powerful demonstration of eschatology, the coming of Christ. The false teachers say it's not going to happen but the Old Testament, and by the way, I, I checked this out. You, you can find in Joel, Joel, Isaiah, Nahum, Malachi, that's just four. They all say that the eventual end of the world is going to come by fire. That everything's going to be consumed by fire. That's exactly what Peter says in verse 7. The heavens and the earth, which are now preserved, they're going to be destroyed, dissolved by fire at that great day of the Lord. Now, the, the false teachers are like, that is ludicrous. That's absolutely, unequivocally ridiculous, preposterous. God is not going to judge this world. God is a forgiving God. He looks upon sin. He just kind of glosses over it. Jesus is not coming back. Don't worry about how you live there. Don't worry about rules and regulations. Don't worry about that stuff because Jesus, he's really not coming again. Anyhow, there is no judgment. And Peter says, wait a minute. Based on the authority of what God said in the Old Testament, based on what I am telling you, what John will tell you, what the other apostles will tell you, he is coming again. And this is a strong argument against the heretics, and he is affirming, he is announcing the return of Christ. All right, let's look at the attack, number two. Verse three, he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust. Now, church family, I know I've said this many, many times, but we, we have guests with us every single Sunday, so let me bring you in on this. When the Bible says last days, it always has this in mind. The chronology, the time frame between Jesus' first coming, Advent, and His second coming, or Advent. This is the church age. This is the end times. Stay with me. The next great, awesome event in God's chronology is the day of the Lord. When he raptures us out of here, and then the world ushers into seven years of horrendous tribulation, and then Jesus comes with the bride of Christ. He sets up his kingdom here on earth, the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. By the way, all of this is tied up in this phraseology of the day of the Lord. And Peter says, everything that I believe and everything that Jesus taught us, the scoffers, and by the way, the scoffer is someone who ridicules with scornful derision. 
They say, ah, oh, it's a bunch of poppycock. Man, I don't believe in that Jesus Christ coming again. Blah, blah, blah. It just is not going to happen. And I'm going to tell you why it's not going to happen. I'm going to give you two reasons why. Now, Peter's going to break down their argument. He says there are two reasons why the scoffers say Jesus could never come again. Number one is a moral argument. And number two is a more uh, intellectual argument. So let's look at the moral argument first. The moral argument goes like this. The scoffers will come in the last days and they will walk according to their own lust. Um, Interesting. The primary reason that people willfully will not believe in God and will not believe in this book, it's not so much an intellectual metaphysical, philosophical reason, it is is much deeper than that. It is a moral reason. Stay with me. If there is no God, if He's not coming again, (laughs) then I can live like I want to live. And I don't have any regulations. I can sleep with as many partners as I want to. I can live the life of a hedonist. I can eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die, and there is no God That'll hold me accountable. Woo! Isn't that a great way to live? Listen to me carefully. Most of the people today in academia and intelligentsia and the Ararite bunch, they reject Jesus Christ not based on their theological, philosophical, evolutionary, if you will, doctrine. It is deeper than that. It is because they don't want to bend their knee. They don't want to bend their heart to Christ. Thomas Huxley was Darwin's bulldog. He was a brilliant man. He graduated from the University of London at the age of 20 with his medical degree. He went on and he taught paleontology, which is the fossil study of fossils. He taught natural history. He defended Darwin's theory, can I say this again? Theory of evolution to the nth degree. In fact, he wrote him a letter and he said these words, as for your doctrines, interesting, Uh, Brother Charles, as for your doctrines, and by the way, Huxley was the first one to apply Darwin's origin, natural selection, mass mutation, all the way to account for the species of mankind. It was Huxley who promulgated that and who taught that. And he says, I want you to know something, Mr. Darwin. I am prepared to go to the stake if requisite. I am sharpening my claws and my beak. His grandson was a man by the name of Aldous. And Aldous followed in his grandfather's footsteps. And I want to read to you an excerpt of a letter from Aldous Huxley. I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Are y'all with me? I just want to do a TV timeout right here. Is everybody okay? Are are y'all with me today? Are you listening to this? All right, listen to this. I had a motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had no meaning. And I was able, without difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning... Now, by the way, when he says no meaning, there's no no purpose, no God, no accountability. Everything can be explained by mass mutation and natural selection. And over billions and billions of years, we are here. And I believe in that, and I'm good with that, because there's no God in that. And I don't have to worry about your church. I don't have to worry about your Bible. I don't have to worry about morals and ethics. I can just live like I want to believe and and do what I want to do. This is where he's going. Listen. 
This, this philosopher finds no meaning in the world. And he's not ex concerned exclusively with the problem of metaphysics. Mm -mm. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an argument and an instrument of liberation, sexual and political, end of quote. Let me read that to you again. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, both sexual and political, end of quote. Let me tell you something. Huxley, Darwin, Richard Dawkins, call, it, call them by their name. They are the scoffers in verse 3 who say, we are going to live like we want to live. There is no God. There is no punitive retribution coming. And I'm going to do what I very well please and what I want to do. And most of our colleges and universities in America today believe this, and they jettison, and they hate the pure Word of God. I just want you to know, I want to go on record and say, I would rather believe God than all the intellectuals in this world today, even though some people would say, well, you're an intellectual, you have a PhD. Yes, I do. I have a PhD. It's not a post hole digger or a Pentecostal hairdo. It is a literal PhD. And I have it, and I've earned it, and I want you to know something. With my mind, I will serve the living God. He's real. He is real. Yeah, but you don't have a Ph.D. in science, so you don't know what you're talking about. That's, that's baloney. So they have a moral, powerful moral argument. But then Peter says something interesting. He says they also have a very intellectual, quasi-intellectual argument. Here it goes, verse 4. They say, where is he? Hello? Hello? Where is he? <laughs> he ain't coming. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is called uniformitarianism. The earth is a uniform closed system. It has no room for this spiritual belief system that would supersede and intervene with the rational and with the empirical. Get this out of your mind. Stop thinking this way, they would say. The system is closed. The earth is closed. God hasn't done anything dramatic and cataclysmic in the past. He's not doing it now, and he's not going to do it in the future. Let me tell you something, friend. I'm telling you, that is precisely what most people in America, God blessed America, most people believe this. Now, I want you to see Peter's response. Ooh, son. Listen to this response. This is number three, apologetic. And by the way, when I use the word apologetic, I, uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I just had a guy meet with me this week in my office, and, and he has a 4.0 graduate University of Wisconsin, and he's he's brilliant young man. He come to me, and he goes, so I'm just new to this area, and I just feel like God's leading me to your church, and uh, I want to talk to you about spiritual things. And an hour later, and I'd given him all the apologetic books that I have, man, this guy, he's ready. He's going to get baptized. He is joining Great Hills Baptist Church. And he asked me this question. He said, what do you think about apologetics? Do you think that is real? 
I do. I think it's awesome. Listen, apologetic is not apology. It's not I apologize for believing this. It's precisely the opposite. Peter says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. That is the word apologia in Greek, a defense. For the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. How many of y'all can give a defense for your faith? How many of you, if you're challenged with evolutionary doctrine, can you defend your faith? How many of you can say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and here's why? Well, listen, it's not an exhaustive study, and and I know we've got a whole lot more people signed up than what I first realized, but we're going to study doctrine and theology for 20 weeks, 6.45 a.m., Thursday mornings, 10 in the fall, 10 in the spring, all right? If you want to come, ladies with hair disheveled and no makeup, that's quite all right with me, all right? Guys, if you just want to limp in here and say, man, I'm on my way to work, that's okay with me. Let me tell you something, friend. I am serious about doctrine, about theology, about the Word of God. And I, I, can't help, I can't help most people, but I can help us people. I can help us be trained and ready and honorable before God so that we can give an apologetic, a defense for what we believe, all right? Peter does it this way. He says, let me give you this defense of the faith. In verse 5, they willfully forget this very important thing. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth stood out of water, and it stood in the water. Genesis 1, 6 through 9, many people translate it that when God created earth, he created a canopy of water circling the earth. And so you had this canopy of water that protected the inhabitants of earth from the harmful sun rays. That's why they lived so much older and longer before the flood. And then, of course, it's not a stretch to believe that on the earth, God put water in reservoirs and lakes and streams and tributaries and oceans. In other words, three-fourths of planet earth is H2O, baby. All right, it's water. They willfully forget that in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, God destroyed this planet with water. It's called the Noahic flood, the great deluge. For 40 days, the earth was pummeled with water, and it stayed on the earth for 150 days. Listen, we look out in California, and we watch the, it rains not near as much as it rained then, and entire homes are engulfed in landslides. I believe that most of our topological and geographical changes in the earth are attributed to a flood. And Peter says, they know this, but they choose to forget this. Keep that in mind, because he's, he's making a very powerful argument. And the argument goes like this in verse 6, God flooded the world. That is the Greek word katakluzo. Come on, help me now. Katakluzo is where we get the English word cataclysmic. And Peter is making this argument. He's saying, listen, God judged the world with water then, and he will judge the world again with fire. And so he is refuting their syllogism or their argument of this uniformitarianism that everything is closed, nothing dramatic, nothing spectacular, nothing supernatural could ever invade planet Earth because we are a closed system. Everything is ordered. Everything has a law. Everything operates finally without God. So get that out of your mind. We are okay. There was no God then. There was no flood then. There was no God now. There is no God in the future. We are okay. We are okay. Forget all this God stuff. And Peter says, you are not okay. There is a God. He is real. He 
absolutely loves you. He died on a cross for you. He arose from the dead to you. He begs with you. He pleads with you. Repent of your sin. Set aside your intellectual pride. Come to me in faith, and I will redeem you, and I will rescue you. There is a God who loves us so much that he gave his one and only son. And if we will only believe, if we would only believe, we would escape the wrath of darkness and hell, and we would live forever in eternal heaven. That's Peter's gospel. That is my gospel. I have no other gospel. I have no other way to go to heaven except through the blood of Jesus that we're about to celebrate here in a moment. They willfully forget that the Word of God says that the heavens were of old and the earth stood out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed being flooded Cataclutso with water. Verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. Stay with me, church, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And Peter's saying the truth. (laughs) He's saying God judged the world then. God will judge the world in the future, but in between this judgment, and, and some people are saying, why all this judgment? Why all this judgment? I mean, what, what does it matter? What does it matter? I can do what I want to do. Don't tell me what to do. Here's the deal, guys. We don't take sin near as seriously as God takes it. God takes it extremely seriously. And because he takes sin so seriously, he offers us a redemption out of hell or we will pay the price for our sin and we will go to hell. Oh, God is unfair. No, he's not. (laughs) Unfair would be just create you, boop, put you all in hell. No, but he says there's an out. There's an escape. Peter's eschatology and John's, when you combine them and, and what Jesus said in the Gospels, I believe it's going to go something like this. Christ will come like a thief in the night. And he will take his church. And we will be raptured out of this place. And you're talking about chaos. You're talking about the aliens did it, baby. You're talking about people will be just clawing. And they will be mad. They will be angry because many, if not billions of people will believe this earth... And then this earth will go into a time of unprecedented tribulation. Revelation chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, and go on through the bowls and the trumpets and the seals. After that time, and by the time Jesus really comes back with us, people are going to be shaking their fist at God. All these atheists are going to become God-fearing people. Now, they're not going to believe and accept him like we will, but they will shake their fist at him and say, how dare you? And then Jesus comes, and it's intense. There's a sword coming out of his mouth. The Antichrist and Satan are, I mean, the Antichrist is destroyed, and Satan is bound for a thousand years, and there's a utopia. There's a peace on earth like we've never known. As Isaiah would say, the lamb and the lion. The child and the viper, they lie down together. What glorious day that will be. After that thousand years are over, there will be one more rebellion. 
And then there will be the great white throne judgment. And all those people, all those people who said he didn't exist, they will stand in the presence of Almighty God. And it's too late. It is too late. According to the scriptures, Jesus pronounces judgment on them. And they go to hell. And when that happens, this earth is incinerated. The earth is destroyed. Heaven and earth as we know it. And then Revelation 21 says, A new heaven and a new earth that God has formed. Here it is. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Some of y'all are like, what happened to the other one? I told you what happened to it. Peter told you what happened to it. It's gone. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no more sea in this new heaven and earth. Aren't you glad that even though it's true and even though it's hard, aren't you glad to know that there's hope? That God has given us an out and it's through His Son. Y'all know y'all are nervous about my leg, and I know I've still got a torn calf muscle. I'm okay. Thank you for praying. I'm I'm coming down, all right? It's going to be all right. Here we go. Guys, this, I have spoken to you the truth. And I want to invite those of you that are here today. If you don't know Christ, and you're not ready to meet Him, and you're not ready to give a defense... I invite you this very day, believe on Him, accept Him as your Savior, and observe these awesome elements. If you don't know Him, please refrain from this. you, You will be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ if you don't know Christ and you eat this bread and you drink this juice, or you're walking way, way from Christ and you eat this bread and you drink this juice, bad things are going to happen to you. So where in the world do you get your doctrine? This is the strangest stuff I've ever heard in my life. Read your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul goes so far to say, you do that, some of you are going to die. You're going to die if you eat this bread and drink this juice and you don't mean it and you're flipping about it and you're like, well, I don't really believe this anyhow, but I'm going to do it. Everybody's watching me. God says, be careful. I might just take your life. Listen, guys, we in America, especially in Austin, man, everything's cool. We ain't worried about no judgment. We're concerned about our next drink. Man, we're not worried about some God coming again. We're worried about the next party going on down at 6th Street. I just want you to know something. I'm not a party-pooping kind of person that you might think I am, all right? Not that I'm a drinking-doing kind of thing. But I like to have fun. I like to... this. Woo! Lord, this is fun to me. You say, man, you're an idiot. No, no, this is fun to me. Preach God's Word. Call upon you to be saved. Observe the elements and go out of here and live the gospel. To me, that is fun. Listen, if this bores you, heaven will really bore you. All right? There ain't going to be no loud mouth hollering, stinking preacher like you up in heaven. Well, I'm going to be there. All right? I'm going to be there. And I'm, I'm happy to say I'm going to be there. And it won't be on any merit of my own. It will be because of this. It was because the king gave his life for me, and he gave his life for you.